This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 432, a conversation with Joe Illage. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans podcast. This is episode 432. It's a conversation with Joe Illage. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. Today's episode, we talked to Joe about his uh, path through comics. He originally was a fan growing up, and then later on, he got into the industry working for Milestone, working for DC Comics on the uh, Batman No Man's Land titles, as he was an editor on those books. Most recently, he's a writer on Solar Man from Scout Comics, and he's also working for Lion Forge Comics to helping to launch their upcoming superhero line known as Catalyst Prime, which is coming out next year in 2017, with seven books launching throughout the year. Uh, so I was very happy to have a chance to sit down with Joe, talk about comics, uh, talk about his career in comics, also talk about the column he used to write for CBR called The Mission. Uh, he's one of the most active Facebook uh, people I've ever seen in terms of so much stuff uh, coming, coming through my feed. Almost all of it is great. I mean, he's got some great thoughts um, he's a really interesting guy, has some great ideas, and a lot of those come through on this episode. Uh, so I think you're really going to dig this interview. Uh, I had a great time, a great, just, it was just a complete blast doing it. Um, and he's also definitely one of the sharpest dressed men in comics, and we also talk about that as well. So without further ado, we're going to get right into the episode. But first, a little bit of housekeeping, as you can email us at comicshenanigans at gmail.com, like the show on Facebook, rate and review us on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also listen to us on Stitcher. One of these days, I'm finally going to really get you know back to uh, updating the Facebook page. It's been far too long. Thank you to those who are actually still liking it, but uh, it really needs some work, so I'm going to try and over all that soon. Uh, otherwise, uh, you can always, uh, again, listen to us on Stitcher and on iTunes are the best ways to get a hold of us. And if you can rate and review us, please let me know if you do give us a review. Uh, if you're the American version of iTunes, I do need to know in order to actually be able to see it because I'm a Canadian. I see the Canadian iTunes and I won't readily see your, uh, your review. And recently we had one a few months ago and I hadn't even noticed because no one happened to mention, hey, we got a new comment for you on the U.S. version. So without further ado, though, let's get into why we're all here today as I talk with Joe Illich. Enjoy. Joe, welcome to Comic Shenanigans. How are you doing this evening? All right. How are you? Thanks for having me. I'm doing very well. Very excited to have you on the show. I know we've uh, we've been working on this for a while to get you on the show. <laughs> yeah, so I'm glad, you know, we finally got to it. I guess we decided we had to wait until after the election. So now that that has happened and we know the shape of things to come, we figured, oh, let's finally do this. Absolutely. Well, it's funny, too, because it feels like in the last year or so since we originally were talking about maybe getting on the show, you've actually had a lot going on. Yeah, there's been a lot of changes. Um, the Solar Man series, which is out from Scott Scout Comics, which I've been doing with um, my co-writer Brendan Deneen, um, artist and Stephen Harris, letterer Marshall Dillon, and colorist Andrew Dowhouse has been really good. We've gotten a lot of positive responses from the readers, and the first issue was a sellout, and now you'll find some copies on eBay for some crazy prices, and the second issue came out, and so we're working on the third issue now, and even past that is my appointment at Lion Forge Comics as senior editor, where I'm basically shepherding their new superhero line, which is called Catalyst Prime, and that's going to be launching in May of 2017, and we have a great list of creators involved, and that's something that we can talk about in more detail later. Excellent. Well, let's let's go way back first. What was your, your first kind of introduction to comics? My introduction to comics, 
Wow, my earliest memory is when I was in the second grade, my mom, every Friday, she would take me to the newsstand, and my mom was a big soap opera fiend, and it was all about the ABC soap operas for her, so it was all about all my children, one life to live in general hospitals. So she would buy herself these soap opera magazines and I would buy comics. And in those days, comic books were more traditionally distributed in newsstands. So you would go to newsstands and you would find everything from the Avengers to the X-Men to the Legion of Superheroes to Jonah Hex to Deathlock the Demolisher. And so that was my earliest memory of buying comics and I was a big DC comics head in those days my favorite titles were the Legion of Superheroes All-Star Comics which had the Justice Society of America oh, yeah. which which are characters that people are now learning about through the CW DC television universe but they've been kind of like friends of mine from childhood and so I really liked the DC Comics in those days, and from there, I think my life changed as a fanboy when I have family in the Bahamas on the island of Nassau, and I would go over there every summer when I was a kid and stay in the Bahamas for like one or two months. And my aunt, one day she comes home and she bought me some comics, and one of them was Uncanny X-Men 112, never forgot it. At the bottom, it said Magneto Triumphant, and Magneto was fighting the X-Men. And it was a great comic by Chris Claremont and John Byrne and Terry Austin and Glynis Wine, and it ended on a cliffhanger. So I'm a kid, and this <laughs> X-Men comic ends on a cliffhanger. I didn't read X-Men 113 for like another 10 years. <laughs> but that comic... X-Men was so cool in those days that that comic was the beginning of my conversion into a Marvel head. And I would go back and forth throughout my life being a fan of either Marvel Universe or the DC Universe. So I ended up falling in love with the DC Universe again due to Christ's on Infinite Earths in 1985. And then during my college years, I was a big fan of Watchmen, Ronin, The Dark Knight Returns. Those three stories totally changed my perception of comics going forward. So it's been a pretty long road, but it started as early as second grade from my memory. Wow. What was it about the Legion that really grabbed you as a child? I like teamwork. I like the idea of a bunch of people, real-life people or superheroes, working together for a common goal. I loved seeing such a diversity of characters and I liked the fact that they just have all these different powers they all seem to get along well I like the character dynamics and the future seemed like a fun place to be in you know it was the 30th century you got to hang out in a big house you had a powering you had superpowers sometimes you would get to fight more Drew or the fearsome five or things like that. So it was like, you know, I'm in the second grade and I'm reading about these teenagers or these young adults with superpowers and flashy costumes and they're all friends and there's some romance going on and they get to fight supervillains. And I'm like, well, that's cool. <laughs> I wouldn't mind growing up and doing that. So 
I think it was those things that made me gravitate to that. And then when I was introduced to X-Men, I saw team dynamics in a different way. And when I was in the fifth grade, I knew this kid named Vincent. Vincent came from a family with some money. So in a month's time, he got together like 25 Avengers comics. And so he designated himself the authority of Avengers. And, you know, kids have to be competitive. So I said, well, I think I'll collect um, 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 X-Men. And so I started seriously collecting X-Men around X-Men 132. So that was a major Hellfire Club storyline. And the Dazzler had been introduced a few months previous. And Kitty Pride had been introduced two months before the Dazzler. And I remember when I opened X-Men 132, there's this scene and Scott Summers and Jean Grey on a mountaintop and they're there with Angel, Warren Worthington III, and he leaves. And they're up there on the mountain. Scott's not wearing a shirt, I think, and Jean Grey's wearing a bikini and they're kissing. And look, I'm in the fifth grade. I don't even know what sex is yet, but I know (laughs) that two X-Men are on a mountain kissing. And as a fifth grader, that to me was the coolest thing. I'm like, okay, that's a bit more interesting than DC Comics. Mm. And so X-Men turned me around in a lot of ways, but in some ways that really spoke to, I guess, adolescence that I would later figure out, oh, that's what they were doing up on that mountain. (laughs) Oh, man, Cyclops is cool, right? So... (laughs) So Marvel Comics like operated on multiple levels, on a level that as a kid I could get it, and then I would later grow up as an adult and say, oh, that's what's going up on the mountain. This is what the Hellfire Club is really about. It's about sex and sadomasochism and money and class structure and things like that, you know? So I think that's what I liked about Marvel Comics, and it was able to operate on the multiple levels absolutely and then i guess when you're in college then suddenly dc kind of goes that route where suddenly it gets a lot more more mature absolutely one of my favorite comics that dc put out after crisis on infinite earths in addition to batman year one which is just a brilliant masterpiece was actually the wonder woman series and the way that i think it was len wine and george perez restarted the Wonder Woman mythology and I just like the idea that the Amazons were reincarnations of women whom had been horribly killed since Neanderthal times and it really spoke to a sense of justice that the universe will not tolerate the um, mass murder of women and that women in another life will be more empowered. I thought that was just really touching. Mm-hmm. I had never seen that in the Wonder Woman mythology before, and I thought that that was really a great kickoff to reintroduce this character into the DC universe. Absolutely. No, I, that's such an amazing run, too. Like The stuff that Perez was working on at the time was really something else, like really rebuilt that character for a whole new generation. Absolutely. It was clearly a labor of love and it's interesting 
I find sometimes that artists, whether consciously or unconsciously, bring some kind of culture to their renditions of characters. So I always thought that his Wonder Woman looked Latina to me, and he may have been emulating her a little bit off of Linda Carter, whom we would later find out is Latina herself. Mm-hmm. So I always thought that was interesting, like George Perez as this Latino artist drawing this character who was made in for a whole generation of people iconic on television, played by an actress who herself was Latina. I always found that really interesting. But yeah, his Wonder Woman, I honestly can't think of an artist whom has had more impact on her, although clearly next in line would be Phil Jimenez. I was going to say, he'd be the natural second. Yeah, I think Phil Jimenez is probably the greatest living authority on Wonder Woman in any way that I can think of. Um, And then what Liam Sharp is doing on the title is amazing. What Nicholas Scott is doing on the title, and they now got Bill Quist Everly on the title. Wonder Woman has really taken a position again as an example of what superhero comics can be, I think. Absolutely. So what, at what point did you say, I, I, I want to get involved with the creation of comics? Because that's a big jump. Maybe not a big jump, but it's a big jump to actually make it happen, to actually get in. So how does, that, how does that work out for you? Well, I was in the high school of art and design in the mid-'80s, and I was one of those kids who had a fantasy that I was going to be a comic book artist like John Byrne. And I always drew as a kid, and I drew growing up. And so I went to high school of art and design, and I went to school of visual arts. And ultimately what I discovered was that I was able to draw from observation. So I could draw the live model, or I could sit with a pad and draw a street scene that I see. But I was not able to draw from imagination, like a comic book artist. That was not a gift that I had, and it would take way too long to develop. And so I abandoned that, but I became interested in writing. And so when I got out of college, I was working at an art supply store, and I kept sending in these pitches to Marvel Comics Presents, which was their anthology title. And I forget the name of the editor there at the time and never getting any feedback. And one day, um, I'm working at the art supply store, and my coworker takes care of this customer. And, you know, just like a one-off thing, and I think my coworker said to me, oh, that guy works in comics. And I said, who was it? And he said, Jimmy Palmiotti. And I said, what? And I ran outside. <laughs> and I stopped him. And I said, hey, you know, hi, you know, my name is Joe. I'm familiar with your work. And, you know, I'm really, I'm really wanting to get into comics. And, you know, I've been pitching Marvel Comics Presents and this and that. And he said, oh, I know the editor. He said, so you know what? Um, give me your name and your address. And he said, and I'll let him know about the pitches you sent. And I said, okay. And you know, that was it. And I was thinking, ah, this guy's just, you know, blowing smoke. He was just being nice. And the editor actually wrote me back like three weeks later. Oh, wow. And gave me notes on all of the three pitches that I sent him. And so number one, that began the friendship of Jimmy Palmiotti and I that goes to this day and Jimmy's just one of the coolest people in comics a real good guy and 
bookstore named Bulletproof Comics that opened up in my neighborhood, and they started having signings there. And Scott Lobdell did a signing there, and he told me some things about writing, which I never forgot. And what he said was, get it down in one sentence. He said, start with one sentence. If you can do it in one sentence, then do a paragraph. And then he said, then do a page. And as you keep expanding, if you can condense an idea into smallest possible units, if someone gives you an opportunity to write eight pages, you'll feel like you have all the room in the world. Huh. And I never forgot that. And then two years later, I read about a comic book company called Milestone. And it was in a catalog called Advanced Comics, which used to be distributed by Capital, which was the other distributor to Diamond, because there were originally two. And Diamond did previews, their catalog, and Capital did Advanced Comics. And I read an interview in Advanced Comics, and it had this phone number, and it had the interview with the Milestone founders and all this amazing artwork by Dennis Cowan. And so I called up and I went in for an internship and I met with Dwayne McDuffie, um, one of the co-founders of Milestone and the editor-in-chief. And I met with Matt Wayne, who was an editor there. And I kind of went in there with a chip on my shoulder. I was like, you know, I know comics and I'm not getting paid for this, so I should be able to nail this. There's no way I'm not going to get this job, right? Which is a non-paid job. (laughs) And, um, and they gave me a chance to intern there. What I would find out years later is that they totally were not going to put me on. And a friend of mine who was working there, Jason Scott Jones, who became their color editor and is now a television producer um, for NBC, he stuck up for me and he said, listen, you know, he's a really good guy. And Dwayne was like, I don't know. Like, I don't know if he's the right guy for, you know, our family kind of unit that we have here and he said no you know trust me Joe's a good guy give him a shot and so they gave me a shot and I was an intern for three months and I learned about all the different aspects of a comic book company creative and business and after three months I was going to leave because I was not making any money and I needed to get a job and so it was right before lunch I said to them I said listen I really appreciate everything that y'all have done for me, but I need to find a job. So I went to lunch and I came back from lunch and they offered me a part-time job. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, it really blew me away. So I worked as an assistant to the president and the president of Milestone um, was Derek Dingle, who is now the VP and editor-in-chief of Black Enterprise Magazine. So he took me under his wing and taught me how a comic book company worked from the business perspective And then after a while, I decided that I wanted to deal with the content. So I moved on over to editorial. And Dwayne McDuffie taught me what an editor was. And I didn't know. I didn't know. I would see that credit in comic books, but I didn't care. Because you're a kid growing up on comics. You care about the writer and the artist. You might care about the inker. You might care about the colors. But editor, I don't care who that is. And so he taught me what an editor was. And he taught me what it meant to be an editor. And it really made an impression on me. And I decided that that is what I wanted to do as a career in comic books. So I worked my way up in Milestone. And then 
when Milestone and DC suspended their relationship for that period of time, I went to work at Simon and Schuster in their Star Trek department, actually, where they did the Star Trek novels. And that was pretty interesting. That was an interesting experience. And about what happened? No, this is what happened. Sorry. I temped at DC Comics as an assistant editor, and I was working on the Green Lantern titles and the Tangent 2 titles and the Chase series based off of Cameron Chase, the character who's appeared in the Supergirl television series. Mm-hmm. So I was a temp assistant editor, and because of that, my credit couldn't go in any of the books. But I worked on a ton of books. And then after that ended, I went to Simon & Schuster. And then I visited DC Comics one day because I had this 10-page Oracle story that I wanted to pitch to Jordan Gorfinkel that I was praying they would accept and would get published in Batman Chronicles. And I said, hey, Gorf, what's going on? Hey, I got this 10-page Oracle story I want to pitch. He was like, okay, that's cool, but listen, I want to talk to you about something. So – Scott Peterson is leaving the Batman editorial group, and we'd like to know if you'd like to join us. Wow. And <laughs> oh man, I I can't even imagine what my face looked like at that time—the <laughs> pure shock of it, you know. And then I went back to Simon and Schuster, and I spoke with my bosses there, and one of them was Margaret Clark, who was a well-known editor. In comics, and the other one was John Ordover, who was a well-known Star Trek fiction editor. And I said to them, I said, "Listen, you know, I know I just got here. Y'all have been really good to me, but DC Comics offered me a job in the Batman group, <laughs> and I kind of feel bad about leaving y'all." And Margaret said to me, "What are you crazy? Go over there and take a job." <laughs> I. I said all right <laughs> and I accepted it and I became a Batman editor and it was during No Man's Land it was at the beginning of Batman No Man's Land which is the craziest time to join Batman right when everything is literally going to hell and they're changing all the rules of storytelling and there was this bible and there was this map and there were a bunch of different creative teams, and there was a new Batgirl. And I said, well, who's the new Batgirl? And they wouldn't tell me. <laughs> For two weeks, they would not tell me who Batgirl was in No Man's Land. Wow. I guess they wanted to make sure I wouldn't get fired. And so I managed to behave myself, and after two weeks, they told me you know, who it was. Because in the beginning, it wasn't Cassandra King. It was Huntress. Right? Helena Bertinelli had abandoned the Huntress identity because when Gotham was reduced to a feudal society and there was no Batman, she saw that the symbol of the bat still represented something in Gotham City. And so she adopted it and she became Batgirl. And so No Man's Land was a great time to come into comic books and working with the Batman editorial group at that time, which was led by Denny O'Neill, who was a group editor, and I worked with Jordan Gorfinkel, Darren Vincenzo, and then eventually Frank Berrios came on, and then eventually Matt Idelson came on. And 
we really put together some great books. No Man's Land, I still consider that the best Batman event in the history of Batman comics. And if anyone wants to fight me on that, then let's just put on some boxing gloves and get in the ring because <laughs> I'm serious. I'm like, if you say Court of Owls, I'm like, okay, I know Scott, I got love for him. I love the Court of Owls, but let's go. I'm not going to agree with that. So <laughs> No Man's Land was great and it gave us the opportunity to work with a bunch of creators some of whom had not done comics or some of whom were new to Batman so that's how I would meet Greg Rucka and start a friendship with him which has lasted to this day Devin Grayson work with people like Phil Winslade Michael Zuli Damian Scott Mm -hmm. who I'm friends with to this day and from there we did a great relaunch of the whole Batman line. We did the Detective Comics run with Greg Rucka and Sean Martinborough. We did Batman Gotham Knights with Devin Grayson and Dale Eaglesham. Which is an amazing book. Oh my god. And it's truly an injustice that DC Comics has never, never made trade paperback collections of Batman Gotham Knights. It mystifies me to this day. And Roger Robinson eventually became the artist on that series we did the new Batgirl series with Scott Peterson, Kelly Puckett and Damian Scott and Robert Campanella in which we introduced Cassandra Cain in her monthly adventures and during that time I became the editor of Birds of Prey which was great Um, I love Babs as Oracle, I love Dinah the Black Canary, I love the two of them together and it was an honor for me to become the editor of that book and when we were shifting for the relaunch in the year 2000 we changed up all the art teams so Greg Land who was on Birds of Prey since the beginning was moved over to Nightwing and I had to find an artist for Birds of Prey to follow Greg Land which was a real trick and then I remembered Butch Geis whom I had loved his work since the Micronauts but he was doing amazing work in Superman, and he did amazing work before that in the Doctor Strange series from Marvel. So I was lucky he was available. I brought him on, and we really put Babs and Dinah through their paces. You know, we had Babs confront the Joker in kind of a Silence of the Lambs type issue. We had Oracle and Black Canary meet for the first time and I just really loved working on that book and it opened my eyes to the need for proper representation of disabled people in the form of heroes and um, I'll never forget one day I'm in my office I get this call this guy says hey I'm you are the editor of Birds of Prey? He says, yeah. And he said, well, I'm a wheelchair user and I'm a mountain climber. Oh. I said, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> and he said, no, I climb mountains. And we were talking about it. And he said, I would like to get a shot at writing an issue sometime. And one of my regrets is that I was not in that position long enough to have ever allowed that to happen because it would have been really fascinating to have Birds of Prey, an issue written by 
a wheelchair user and have some story where Oracle is climbing mountains. I would have loved it, you know? Mm-hmm. But, um, so that series really opened my eyes to positive representation of disabled people and positive representation of women. I realized it was a major responsibility and it was important for me to do that for that book, which in back of Wonder Woman, I think was the top selling woman superhero title at DC Comics. So, you know, that was a good run at DC. Had a lot of fun. I worked with some great people and I met creators with whom I would develop friendships that go to this day and business relationships that go to this day. It's interesting too because, I mean, in a lot of ways, I guess, uh, depending on how you look at the the quirk of timing, without Babs and without your, your pitch for that Oracle story, you wouldn't have been in the office to get the job in the first place. You see what I'm saying? So I really owe a good part of my career to Oracle. And so that means I owe a good part of my career to John Ostrander, Kim Yale, Brian Stelfry, Scott Peterson, and these people who took Barbara Gordon, you know, after she was shot by the Joker, and put her on this new path. And... I just really fell in love with that character because Babs has so much heart. She's so humane and she's so good, but she's also intelligent and formidable. And I was actually at Milestone when I first met Jordan Gorfinkel when he was working on the Birds of Prey one-shot. So I was waiting for that book. And when it came out, I was like, oh, I'm sold on this. This is great. And at that time, I had no idea that I would one day become the editor of that book so for me it was a special honor because I was a fan from the beginning but I never thought about it that way that my um, fanboyishness for Oracle back in the day actually led to the timing that got me a job there so it seems like I owe the character a debt <laughs> which, I, which I hope I have repaid appropriately um, what, what, can you tell us what was your original pitch from that story do you remember it Oh, my God. You know, I don't. Oh, my God. You know, I don't remember. This career-changing pitch. I know, I know, I know. I don't remember. what. Well, you know what happens. Once someone tells you, do you want to work in the Batman editorial office, like, suddenly your mind is wiped. Hmm. And whatever you had to say before (laughs) no longer exists. Um, You know what I think it was, actually? I think it was a pitch for an Elseworlds in which... Barbara Gordon was killed, but her personality was kept in an artificial intelligence system that became the security system of a new Gotham that was called Oracle. Interesting. And Dinah Lance and Dick Grayson were the two heroes of that world, but there was no longer a Batman. Dinah Lance was Black Canary. And she was on a quest to learn the truth behind the Oracle artificial intelligence that governs Gotham City. And I think Dick Grayson was her boyfriend. And it was an Elseworlds thing. And it was called Cybercasm. See, now you've got all this stuff coming out of my head. That is what the pitch was. It was a Birds of Prey Elseworlds pitch. Which I'll now never get to write. And after this interview, I'm going to go and cry in my room. So thank you. <laughs> For doing that to me. Oh, you're welcome. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what the pitch was, yeah. 
Um, when you were working on the No Man's Land books, I mean, that's a huge undertaking, obviously, with so many books and it's so well orchestrated. What was it like kind of being part of the team that was overseeing this meticulous, you know, crossover? Because I think you're right. I, I've never, I don't think I'll ever see as meticulously crafted a huge epic amongst the, the sheer amount of books and months that it went through. It's, it's a truly colossal storyline. Thank you. Thank you. Um, well, number one, I was blessed to work with a great group of people um, in terms of the editorial group. I mean, Denny O'Neill, Jordan Gorfinkel, and Darren Vincenzo. Working with them was one of the great experiences of my career. And in terms of the, the enormity of No Man's Land, when I got there to DC working on Batman, I think one of the first things I did was I ordered supplies. And one of the supplies I ordered was the biggest erasable marker board in existence. <laughs> and it rested on one side of my office. And I took a marker and I literally drew a grid of the books and the different creative positions. And I would update that thing every day. So I could see basically four months at a glance and as you remember it was a weekly schedule so there was no option for a book to be late if a book is late the whole house of cards falls apart so you really had to look at it from a bird's eye view almost like a showrunner of a television show mm-hmm. you had to see No Man's Land as basically like a Netflix series a season of a Netflix series and you had to chart character arcs you had to chart story acts and you had to do it on a book by book basis and something like that helped prepare me for something that I would do later in comics and seeing that structure that superstructure that helped me really engage story on a macro scale. A lot of us, we read comics and we see story from the scale of the book that we're reading. But if you see the superstructure of something, it gives you a totally different understanding of narrative hmm. and how narrative can be manipulated and how character arcs must happen how if a character is the same at the end of an experience as they were in the beginning, then that's not character because there's been no movement. And so it showed me the importance of micro arcs and macro arcs. Wow. It's interesting too. Like I I feel like a storyline like that can either break you or make you as an editor too, because either you're going to be driven insane or you're going to be, uh, in some ways, the next project's never going to seem big enough. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy, you know. And the thing was, the way I was made to understand it is that originally, DC Comics did not want to do No Man's Land. Because No Man's Land was basically saying, Batman is inaccessible to the rest of the DC Universe for one year. And... There were, there were tensions within the company because of that. There were things that we had to reconcile with the Justice League office, but we did. But it was not expected to succeed. 
And then once it succeeded, suddenly everyone wanted to be part of No Man's Land. All these other creators were like, hey, can my character be in No Man's Land? Can my character be in No Man's Land? And it really turned out to rejuvenate the Batman franchise for DC Comics, the publishing arm. And you would later see echoes of it in a movie like The Dark Knight Rises where Gotham's bridges are blown and Gotham is reduced to a feudal society. Oh, I've never seen that before. <laughs> and um, so you would later see characters show up on a Gotham television series and it would introduce characters like Cassandra Cain who are still in the mythology to this day. And yeah, it was a really major undertaking. And then after that was the undertaking of the relaunch of the entire Batman line. No, So it was kind of going from one interesting adventure to another interesting adventure. But um, we actually managed to not be broken by it, you know, but there was never a boring day. Well, I would imagine not. <laughs> nope, no way. I guess like, what, what was... Um... Like, how busy were the days? Like, I, I, I'm just trying to imagine just, like, how chaotic... Or did you guys end up figuring out a pretty good system so that it wasn't chaotic? It was busy, but not chaotic. No, yeah, we had a pretty good system of how we worked together to keep it all straight. In terms of how long the days were, I would get to DC Comics, I think, at 9.30 in the morning. And there were some times when I did not leave till 7.30 at night. I did not try to make that the norm, but I know it happened quite a bit. And part of that was the enormity of No Man's Land, but part of that was doing something that I loved. So I was, and at that time I was single. So that was a totally different ball of wax. Once you get into a relationship, that's a whole other thing. And I don't know if you're staying at the office until 7.30 editing comic books. So it was just a different period in my life altogether. But um, the editorial team worked very well together to balance the load, to help each other out, even though there were different titles to represent different levels of authority. We didn't see each other in that context. We saw each other as equals and partners, and we worked together to get the job done. And that extended to the writers when we would have creative conferences with the writers, when we would work with the artists. I really feel like it was a team effort across the board. And so the victory of it is a victory that I feel like we all shared. Now, this may not or may or may not be a difficult question, but were there any specific kind of beats or ideas that kind of came more from you that in No Man's Land that you kind of not take ownership for it because kind of say, well, that was kind of a kernel of my idea or that's kind of came from me? Okay, I can tell you one. And I won't tell you specifically what it is, but there was an issue of Batman Shadow of the Bat in which Superman returned to Gotham City during No Man's Land. It wasn't the first time that it happened, which was early in the No Man's Land run. It was like in the last three months. And Devin Grayson wrote it, and Dale Eaglesham and John Floyd um, did the pencils and the inks. And I made a suggestion to Devin, and Devin being such a sweet soul and so generous, put it in there. I won't tell you what the idea was, but that was something where it was like, 
oh man, that was really nice. She did it, <laughs> and she re- and she really made it work. So that was something. Um, other than that, you know, there were so many ideas going back and forth. It's hard to be able to say who suggested what. I mean, the Bible that we had was pretty good in terms of structure. And the writers really took that and ran with it and expanded on it. And I remember one of the books that really blew us away, the entire editorial group, was that issue that Greg Rucka wrote in which Batman and James Gordon have that major talk. Oh, yeah. It was like within the last two months of No Man's Land. And like that was such a powerful story and there's that there's that page where Batman is standing in back of Gordon and he's got the mask off and it's Bruce with the stubble on his face standing there and he says he's basically like I don't have anything else to give you to prove to you ultimately that I love you and that I respect you I give you this I give you my face I give you my name and Gordon was like Put your mask on. I don't need to see that. For all you know, I may already know who you are, but I don't need to see that. I don't need that from you. And then he turns back, and Bruce is back in Batman mode. But that vulnerability, when you have nothing left to offer somebody, and then you dig deep and you offer them something that that leaves you totally naked... That's that's touching, man. That's 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 drama. So um, I remember when that came in, and we were all like, "Wow, that's pretty damn amazing," you know? Oh, absolutely. That's yeah. That's still a great moment. I mean, that, it's interesting because No Man's Land is full of so many extremely strong moments for various different reasons, like the quieter moments, like that. The um, actually, I do have a question. Actually, near the end of the No Man's Land storyline, what was the discussion like in the offices about killing off Sarah Essen? Oh, oh, I still remember that day. We were in Denny O'Neill's office, and this is a little bit of a funny factoid, and people who were there at the time could tell you this. Um, Mike Carlin, who was known for being the big Superman editor during the death of Superman and reign of the Superman, his office was a corner office who so had all this natural light coming in, and he had all these colorful toys and, and, and statues and stuff. And Denny O'Neill, as a group editor of Batman, his office was dark because <laughs> he had he had the shades over the windows and he had his lamp at his table and he would always have scripts on his desk. So it was me, Frank Berrios, Matt Idelson, Darren Vincenzo, and we're sitting in Denny's office and we've got Greg Rucka on the speakerphone and we're talking about the climax of no man's land and that was the discussion in which it was known for a fact that Sarah was going to die and um and it's and, and that's something to really talk about right mm-hmm. like like you're gonna, you're gonna do this and you're not and we're not talking about it in terms of a woman being a disposable character like tissue paper we're talking about it in the sense of consequence and if No Man's Land at its core is about the relationship between Batman and Gordon and their relationship to Gotham City, 
then there has to be trauma, there has to be loss that will propel them forward in different ways. And so a variety of things were discussed and, you know, ultimately it was decided that, you know, Sarah S. Gordon would die. And, um, and that was something. And I think that that really came through in Detective Comics 742, which was the first um, Rucka Martin Bro issue. And I think the first book of the Batman 2000 relaunch and seeing Gordon dealing with the loss of Sarah. And, um, you know, it just really speaks to the responsibility of dealing with the subject of death. It's funny, I was just earlier today talking with Brandon Thomas, who's writing one of the books I'm editing at Lion Forge. And I was telling him about how much I can't stand fake death in superhero comic books. I cannot stand it. I feel like it diminishes the impact of death. If superhero comics are our mythology, are the stories that are the metaphors and analogies for human experience, then, like, resurrection is ridiculous. And the only time I forgave it was Winter Soldier, Ed Brubaker's return of Bucky Barnes as Winter Soldier is so well done that I had to tip the hat to that. I was like, okay, that's if you're going to bring a character back from the dead, that's how you do it. But in general, I feel like dead is dead. And so when we dealt with the consequences on Gordon of the death of Sarah, I felt like that was really, like that's, that's a story. That's character. That's consequence. And it's loss, you know? Absolutely. I mean, well, I mean, you could kind of sum up No Man's Land in general, all being about loss, about, you know, losing so much of who you are, what you are, and everything that kind of anchors who you were. I mean, and obviously, that was a theme that had started during Cataclysm, where, I mean, if you go back and read some of those, the kind of the shorter stories around Cataclysm, some of them are harrowing, where there is no happy ending, and people are just dying. And like, absolutely. Some of those stories are just harrowing, like it's, I'm almost surprised they got published. Yeah, um, it was really brilliant to take Cataclysm and then take Contagion about the viral break and then use those as the basis for No Man's Land. It was such a logical, real-world way of thinking that I was really impressed that they did it. And it was Jordan Gorfinkel who actually came up with the idea for No No Man's Land. He was an editor at the office in the time and the way the story goes he went away one weekend and he came back with this 10 page document oh wow and the way the story goes because I wasn't there at the time when I came No Man's Land just started basically Denny O'Neill said this is the craziest thing in the world and it's either going to work or it's going to fail miserably and we're all going to get fired so I'm going to do it And and he fought for it and it got done because Denny believed in story. He believed in drama. He did not believe in playing anything safe. And No Man's Land could have failed miserably, but damn, that would have been a way to go. Absolutely. Now, what what, what did you, I mean, you kind of mentioned it there, but what did you learn from Denny as an editor? Well, it's tricky because I learned so much from him that was similar to what I learned from Dwayne, 
I feel like what I learned from Dwayne McDuffie was character. That character is of supreme importance. And if you can give me a character that I care about, then people will go on the journey with you. I think what I learned from Denny was causality. And causality in the sense of dramatic consequence. And I think what I also learned from him was a certain temperament in dealing with creators and how you want to listen to everything before you say anything. You want to give people the opportunities to defend their positions as creators, to explain to you why they've chosen to do something. And if something seems scary to you, maybe that's the good reason to do it. Hmm. If you get something that was not what you expected to get, but it is good, do it. Because if you didn't see it coming, the, the audience will not see it coming. And readers do not like to be able to predict the ending. Right? So I think from Denny, I got temperament and the capacity to listen. Okay. Now, when when your tenure at DC ended, um, where did you go right away? Like, where did you, like, where did, where because we didn't, I guess, see you for a little while. So where did you disappear to? Yeah, I kind of did like the Bruce Wayne thing and I like went on some kind of training to like come back and be better for comics but in reality I moved over to the production side and I started working for a book publisher called Watson Gubtill Publications and they were known for doing a lot of art books and I got into book manufacturing and in that period of time I learned the value of the book as an object so you can have the best content the best narrative the best art the best design But if the book itself is not a good quality book, no one will buy it because we are governed by our eyes. And if the paper is cheap, if the binding is bad, if it doesn't have these certain effects on the cover like embossing and debossing and foil stamping, and if the cover stock isn't a good stock, if the paper isn't a good weight, if the packaging is not good, people will be less likely to engage the value of the story within those pages. So I learned about book manufacturing and I got back in the comics editing in 2007 when I started working for a publisher at the time called Archaea and I met Mark Smiley and Aki Lau and they were the owners of Archaea I met them at a comic book convention in New York and we got to talking and developing a friendship and after I had been doing production work for six, seven years, I was freelancing and they offered me a job as their comics editor. So that was cool and I worked for them and that was different because for all of my career I had been working on company-owned characters and with Archaea they were publishing creator owned stories so that was a real shift for me where I don't know the rules of the character 
So what my goal was, was to look at those characters and look at the stories and say, okay, how could your story be served better? How could your characters be served better? How can we communicate this theme better? And so I would work with creators to help realize their ideas in better ways um, or in stronger, stronger ways. And so at the time, there were comic books there like Mouse Guard. There was a zombie horror comic called Awakening by writer Nick Tapolansky and artist Alex ekman Lawn. Um, there was this crazy comic book called Revere about Paul Revere fighting werewolves <laughs> by Ed yeah, by Ed Lavely. And when I first heard that, I was like, what are you talking about? And I read it and I was like, sold. So, and then what I did was Brandon Thomas, who's writing the critically acclaimed Horizon series for Image, he used to write this column called Ambidextrous, which I would read every week. And for one installment of Ambidextrous, he talked about this character that he had called Miranda Mercury, who was a black woman space hero from a family of black space heroes and there was a one or two character shots there by the co-creator artist lee ferguson and i thought to myself wow i would buy that comic and so when i got to archaea and i said can i acquire projects and they said sure i reached out to brandon i was like you got miranda mercury he said yes yeah. let's do it and so we fleshed out and put out one issue of the many adventures of Miranda Mercury. And it was pretty high concept because even though it was the first issue, it was issue 295 because the conceit that Brandon was putting out is that there was this whole mythology of Miranda Mercury that you were unaware of and you were picking it up in issue 295. <laughs> and um, it was crazy, but it was a really fun comic. We got one issue out, and then we didn't get any more out until Archaea was acquired by Boom Studios, and I didn't move over at that time, but The Many Adventures of Miranda Mercury got finished there, and the hardcover came out. And even though I was no longer at Archaea, because I was at Archaea for about a year and a half, I wasn't there anymore, but seeing that book, it really kind of warmed my heart because... I felt like even though I wasn't there for Miranda's whole journey, that I helped start the journey. And it was crazy because I remember buying the hardcover for that book the same night that my fiance and I went and saw the Tribe Called Quest documentary, Beats, Rhymes, and Life. And it was just kind of funny. It was like, wow, this is a great day. Like, <laughs> I'm, buy I'm buying the Miranda Mercury hardcover and I'm reading all these stories that are totally new to me. And I'm going and seeing a documentary on the Tribe Called Quest. And I was like, wow, Saturdays just doesn't get any better than this. So it's kind of interesting to start something off and see it become fully realized um, I think part of the joy of being an editor is is helping to realize helping to put something on a path to become a story that will hopefully impact people years later and um, you know it really amazes me there are people that I talk to today and 
they grew up on Cassandra Kane as Batgirl. And they'll say thank you for being a part of that. Thank you for helping to bring Cassandra to life. And I had no idea. Like at that time, I'm just thinking, you know, this is cool. We're going to have an Asian Batgirl, and that's cool. You don't think that, you don't think that 20 years later, someone's going to come up to you and say thank you. I grew up on that character. That character was the character that set me on a path. And, um, you know, it's pretty amazing. Absolutely. Um, I want to ask, when did you first start writing your your columns for CBR? And how did that come about? That started in 2014. And what happened was Jonah Weiland, who at that time was the owner of Comic Book Resources, reached out to me because... He wanted to do a set of columns for Black History Month. And he spoke to two people and they mentioned my name and he was aware of me from my history with Milestone and my Batman time and constantly being an advocate for diversity and inclusion and he had heard interviews with me and so he reached out to me and he said, I'd like to do this and we spoke about it. It turned out one Anyone who knows Jonah knows that he's a huge fan of the L.A. Clippers. And it turned out that the day that he reached out to me, the next day he was heading to New York City because he was going to see the Clippers play at Madison Square Garden. So we got together at a bar pub and had some dinner and we spoke about it. And what we both agreed on is that the column was not going to be a column about complaining and bitching. It was going to be a column about analyzing and hope, the belief that things would get better, that the industry could get better, and that the discussion with a critical analysis of the industry could act as part of a road to a better industry. And so I was really excited about doing that, and so I did it for – the month of February in 2014 and I wrote some columns I did some interviews and then he said you know keep going and it went into March and then it went into April and I interviewed some great people in comics some of whom are friends of mine did a two part interview with Phil Jimenez about Wonder Woman and sexuality and being Latino and gay in comics and it was amazing I did an interview with Brandon Easton, who's now the writer of Mask and Vampire Hunter D, Jeffrey Thorne, Afua Richardson, um, you know, people who are now working on popular comics for Marvel, and Jamie Brudnax, who is the head of Black Girl Nerds, which has, I think, 50,000 Twitter followers, including Shonda Rhimes, who basically owns Thursday Night on ABC television with How to Get Away with Murder and Scandal and Grey's Anatomy. It's like, it was cool to talk to these people about comics, and it was good to discuss what was happening in the industry, which was the systematic marginalization of people who were not white, male, cisgender, and handsome with working limbs. If you did not fall into that category, 
you were not presented with equal opportunities in business or in creative circles. And I would like to think that in some small way, I made a contribution to what is happening now, which is that these doors are being opened more. And you're seeing publishers take ownership of their inaction by offering more opportunities to people. And, you know, my column was a weekly column and there are people who have been fighting the fight for decades in comics. I worked at Milestone. All of the founders of Milestone fought the fight. Dwayne McDuffie, Dennis Cowan fought the fight. Um, Christopher Priest, one of the founders of Milestone, was fighting the fight. People like Arvell Jones, the co-creator of Misty Knight, and so many people. And But I had people call me and tell me, listen, um, I'm talking with people, and your column is making an impact. It's opening up discussions. And I was honored to do it. I was honored to do it because I felt like I was continuing the work of Milestone in a way because, you know, those guys gave me an opportunity and took me under their wing. And what they wanted to do was help to create a landscape of equality for everybody in comics. Comic books should be a meritocracy. Absolutely. And so my column was intended to discuss the path to meritocracy in a way and um, and then I also got to you know talk about some interesting subjects talk about the significance of Luke Cage and what Luke Cage as a character and his power meant to the legacy of black men in America and this was a year and a half before the Luke Cage series came out and I remember I wrote about it, and I wrote about it because of what had happened in Ferguson. And, you know, when you're in comics, or at least I was, I kind of felt, you just feel powerless. I felt like, wow, I shouldn't even be writing about comics. This is happening in the world, and I'm writing about comic books. So I said to myself, how can I do what I do and somehow say something about that? And it inspired the Luke Cage column that I wrote, um, which was titled Real Life Proves Why Luke Cage Endures. And Jonah, the owner, had reached out to me and he said, you know, I never thought about Luke Cage that way. Huh. Right? I never understood the significance about Luke Cage being bulletproof as it related to the civil rights movement and the black leaders of the time being shot down like dogs and, you know, what happened to Emmett Till and um, what happened with the prison riots in Attica. And so it was really my honor and pleasure to do that on a weekly basis. And that is something that I actually have to get back to to some degree because my new responsibilities at Lion Forge have really taken up a lot of my time but I definitely want to get back to 
a weekly column rotation and comic book resources has been kind enough to still have that door open for me. Albert Ching, the managing editor, is a friend of mine. He's just a really good guy. And I am grateful to comic book resources that they gave me the opportunity to write a column like that because sometimes that column was not well received by people of power at the two top comic book publishers. Hmm. So sometimes there was some blowback. <laughs> um, but they never said, you can't do this anymore. They never asked me to soften my narrative voice. They never asked me to censor my opinion. So that is how that began and went on for a good stretch and I intend to get back to it and be a bit more expansive about it um, now that we, as a industry, are doing more in the inclusion sector I think now I want to talk a bit more about how what's going to happen going forward what's going to happen going forward with comics and the relationship between comics and the world so that's something I really want to dig my teeth into how did you end up getting involved with Solar Man where did that come about that happened because so the owners of Solar Man, and just to give a little bit of a backstory, Solar Man was originally a white male superhero. His comic book came out in 1989. It was published by Marvel. It went two issues. In the second issue, Solar Man fought Doctor Doom. And then it was canceled because at that time, Solar Man wasn't selling well enough to have a continued life, although what it was selling was 400,000 copies a month, which these <laughs> days people people would literally kill to get sales like that. Absolutely. It's kind of like so, TV, it's kind of like TV shows back in the day. You get canceled if you, you know, were only pulling in 15 million and now people would kill to have 15 million people watching your show. Absolutely. And so what happened is Solar Man is owned by Dave Oliphant and his wife Deborah Kalman and they were looking to bring Solar Man back in the present day and they were looking for a publisher and they met Brendan Deneen who's the CEO of Scout Comics and Entertainment and they felt like Scout Comics and Entertainment was the right house for Solar Man and that Brendan was the right person to help bring it back and Brendan and I had known each other for a few years Brendan was aware of my career and he read my columns and it was very important to Dave and Deb and it was important to, um, to Brendan that Solar Man have some kind of authentic voice to it and so Brendan reached out to me and asked me to co-write it with him and he told me that Solar Man was now black and I said ah okay and he told me about the themes that we wanted to address and I said well do we have a lot of room to play here and he said yes so I took on co-writing with him and I decided to also be the editor of the title because I was concerned about the quality of the title and Brendan gave me free reign with that so I brought on and Stephen Harris he is the artist of Solar Man, he has a independent comic book, Ajala, that he's co-created with Robert Garrett. 
He's a co-creator of Aztec, mm-hmm. um, a kind of well-known cult DC hero that Mark Millar and Grant Morrison created. He's drawn Deadpool, Captain America, Generation X. And he was actually the first artist I hired when I was at DC Comics to do a Huntress story. So Steve and I go back a long time and Steve lives in Brooklyn and I live in Brooklyn and we decided to put Solar Man in Brooklyn. So I thought it would be cool, like two Brooklyn brothers doing this story about a black superhero in Brooklyn. And then Marshall Dillon is the letterer. I've known Marshall since my time at Arkea. He's a consummate professional, great guy. So I said, okay, I brought him on. And then Andrew Dowhouse, I knew from 2007. We worked together on a project for a client. And he's doing amazing work in Valiant Comics right now. And so, you know, I brought him on. And we're really happy with how the book has turned out so far, the positive responses that we've received from people. And, you know, every comic book has its place. You know, Solar Man is not intended to be a masterpiece. Solar Man is intended to be ultimately a story about someone becoming heroic. And within that and within the superpowers to have some social truth because if a white 18-year-old male gets superpowers and a black 18-year-old male gets superpowers and they're both in America... They're going to go on two totally separate tracks, whether they wish to or not. And so what we wanted to do was communicate a little bit of truth within the high adventure dealing with extraterrestrials and covert government agencies and hacking and bullying. Um, We wanted to kind of bring a little of that social truth to it. And I think we've managed to do that so far. And... So the next issue is going to be coming out soon, and we think people are going to like it, and we hope that fun continues. And then how did you end up joining Lionforge? Because you had, now, now you're you know you're writing a book, and then suddenly you're with Lionforge, and I remember kind of seeing it on your Facebook, which is one of the most active Facebooks I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank uh, you. Um, and, and always interesting, but it, like I, I, I'm not a huge Facebook guy, but I'm definitely I follow yours probably more than any mo, almost anyone else on my feed. Probably also because you have the most content, but that's neither here nor there. But um, I was I remember seeing that and being like, wait a minute, aren't you writing that other book? Like, what? Yeah, where right. did Lionforge come from? Right, right, right. It's it's interesting. I've known um, Dave Stewart the second, who is the owner of Lionforge, Carl Reed, who's the chief creative officer. I've known them for a few years. I mean, I met the Lionforge guys a few years ago. I think the first time I saw them was at New York Comic Con, I'm going to say 2013. And I saw this table of black creators at this company owned by a black man. And I started taking pictures and I went up and started speaking to them. And so our relationship has been going for a few years now and I started doing some freelance editing for them in November of 2015 and in January Jeff Gerber became the president of Lionforge and Jeff and I started talking about you know how about a full time position and 
it's exciting on one end and then it's nervous on another because it's like, wow, you're really going to go back into it whole hog. And on another end, well, I said, listen, um, there are things that I believe in and I will now have the ability to help make a greater impact in this industry ecosystem. So we talked about it. We had a lot of things to work out. I was actually working at a, at a book publisher at the time. I had my fiance. I had to think about her. So there were all these considerations that came into play. And ultimately, we made it work. And I started there in June of this year. And they wanted to launch a superhero universe. And I said, okay, if you're going to do that, then then let's really go for it. No, you know, as Mike said in that infamous episode of Breaking Bad, no half measures, Walter. <laughs> <laughs> you're only going to go full measure. So they gave me a lot of room. There was a there, there was a skeletal idea of a universe called Catalyst Prime, and they said, "Okay, this is your job as senior editor. Make it real." And so the first thing I had to do was I had to start getting talent, and it started with the writers. And you know, I had to think about who are some of the more interesting minds in comic books who's imaginative um, who can bring something different who might surprise people because sometimes you want to surprise people Um, and so the writers that I brought together was Joe Casey and Joe Casey had a relationship with Lineforge before so that was an easy transition Um, bringing in Amy Chu bringing in you know, Amy did the great Poison Ivy miniseries, which really just took that character to the next level and really reminded the fans that she is a person of high intellect and deductive reasoning. Um, brought in David Walker, of course known for Shaft, Cyborg, his amazing work on Power Man and Iron Fist, and now his work on Occupy Avengers. Uh, Dr. Sheena C. Howard, who won the Eisner Award for her book Black Comics Politics and Race and Representation and bringing on Brandon Thomas whom I worked with at Archaea and who's doing the science fiction series Horizon for Robert Kirkman's imprint Skybound at Image Um, Ramon Govea who's a filmmaker and producer He actually created one of the concepts behind one of the titles, Alex DeCampi. I've known Alex for years. She is one of the most versatile writers writers in comics. She can write any genre. She can go from blaxploitation in space (laughs) for the Dark Horse Grindhouse series to 70s spy stuff with her Mayday series to No Mercy for Image to Lady Danger for Dark Horse. So it was great to bring her in. And then finally, um, Christopher Priest. And for me, that was a, a really important thing because 
he was one of the original founders of Milestone, co-founders, and um, I've been inspired by his work for years. Um, I edited the Batman The Hill one-shot that came out in 1999, in which Batman went to a part of Gotham City where the poor black people were and no one was afraid of him because he had never been there before. And that was such a good social statement. And he did an amazing series called Zero about a black secret agent that went around killing people wearing prosthetics that made him look like a Caucasian blonde man. But in his secret, in his real life, he was a basketball player in St. Louis. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. It was a great series. And, I mean, of course, his Black Panther run is one of the most influential runs right next to Don McGregor's. And so being able to bring him on and have that pool of writers was really important. And then what I did was I set up a writer's retreat. So we went away to a hotel for a few days and we sat in a conference room and we spent a day banging out this universe. Who the players are, how does this work? How did it begin? Where are we gonna go for the next two years? And it was really important to get all those people in a room because first off, creators, when they're creating, they're pretty solitary, right? They're sitting at their desks. So while some of us are having fun or we're out there in corporate America, but we're socializing, these are people who are at their desk writing or penciling or inking or coloring. And so to be able to bring them out and to see each other and to have their neurons firing and to bounce ideas off each other, I felt it was important at the beginning of this universe, this Catalyst Prime superhero universe, to have a team mentality, to have a sense of community that would start to breathe life into these characters. It's it's interesting and, when you say that. It reminds me of, I mean, obviously things didn't go well there, but it kind of reminds me of the, the earliest um, that we heard about when Crosstown first came out, where it was very much a team aspect, where everyone yeah. was kind of together. Obviously that had its ups and downs and ended up badly, but uh, at, le- at least originally when it started, when I've talked to some of the creators about it, it was very interesting that it was this community uh, where everyone was kind of working together in a way that you never had anywhere else. Right. I think the cross-gen model was very much like a studio model where everyone was working in this place. They were working there. They were Mm -hmm. living nearby. So it was kind of like a retreat, but every day. Yeah, because I I was talking to some of them and they were saying that, like, you know, uh, people who wouldn't necessarily be involved in as much of some of the creative process at the beginning, like Anchorage, for example, they're all working together. So they actually got to contribute more. Such a fascinating uh, model that's just so different and probably will never be replicated because it's not necessarily the most effective in terms of cost, but it's just it's inter- it's an interesting model that they tried. Absolutely, and some really great comic books came out of it. And while it was unfortunate that CrossGen failed, the industry I think learned from that failure, and so. I would like to think that the models that exist now are improvements upon that. And so the Lion Forge writer's room is something that I actually got from DC Comics because when I was a Batman editor, 
we did retreats in which we would discuss the path of the Batman universe for 18 months. So I thought that that was necessary here. And then once we basically had the architecture set up, then it was time to start picking the artists. And so, you know, that's not easy. You have to find artists that have some kind of notoriety, that have the style that you're looking for, that you know can put out a book on a monthly basis, and that are available, available, not doing an ongoing series for Marvel and DC. So I really had to go through the Rolodex, but I came up with some great people, Damian Scott, Jan Dersima, Hefte Palo, Larry Stroman. Wow, who else? It's like I'm forgetting, I'm forgetting. It's not good, it's not good. My brain is kind of like, I've, I've been through an editorial day, but you know, we also have colorists like, we have Veronica Gandini, we have Jessica Colleen, we have Kelly Fitzpatrick, we have Chris Sotomayor, we have Todd Klein, one of the best letterers in the business, oh, yeah. lettering a book for us. We have Saida Temofont. We have Janice Chang. Um, we have this really amazing artist, Marco Torini, who's doing the one shot that Christopher Priest and I are co-writing. And we have John Rauch doing colors for us. And we have Snakebite Cortez coloring for us. We have Rob Stull doing inking for us. We have Robert Campanella doing inking for us. So we have Pop Mon on board. So many talented people that are going to help, you know, kick off the next big superhero universe. And in approaching it, you know, one of the most important things, of course, like I said before, that I learned from Dwayne is character. So all of these characters have to be people that you care about, people that you may hate, you may not hate, you may want to hate, but admire, people that have traits that you can relate to or that you believe in, um, that all the books feel different, that you don't feel like you're trapped into buying an entire universe of books, but that if you do, you will be rewarded for it by seeing things on a bigger scale, and that it's new. Um, you know, I've been reading comics for years, and sometimes you just get tired of the 45th reboot, right? Absolutely. And even me, as a person who grew up on Batman, who edited Batman, who, you know, rebuys some of the Batman books now. I buy the Batman title written by Tom King. I buy Detective Comics. But it's hard for me to continue to believe in the Batman universe because it's hard for me to believe that the Joker would still be alive. Mm. It's hard for me to believe that even though Batman and his people would not kill the Joker, that the world would not have killed the Joker for being a mass murderer the way it did with Saddam Hussein and other people. And that the Joker is an idea. The Joker is viral, just like Batman is an idea. So if you kill the Joker, there's going to be another Joker. Just the same way Batman will never die. If you kill Batman, there will be another Batman. So if you kill the Joker, there'll be another Joker. But they won't kill the Joker. And I have a hard time wrapping my head around that. Mm. So I feel like there's a, there's a weight 
that comes with decades of legacy of mythology. And, you know, when Catalyst Prime launches next year, people can get in on the beginning. And isn't that exciting sometimes to start at the beginning of something? Like, imagine if you were the person that you watched the entire series of Breaking Bad for five years, and you talk to someone, and they say, I'm going to start watching Breaking Bad today. I've never watched it before. And you say to yourself, oh, man, I envy you. I envy you that feeling that you're going to go back and you're going to meet Walter before Gus Fring, before so many things. Um, It's exciting to start at the beginning of a universe. And when I think about my inspirations, and I said this in interviews so it may seem repetitive, but I'm really being honest about it. Um, Darwin Cook's DC The New Frontier is an inspiration to me because it reminded me that the DC universe was an amazing place because there was a time when I totally gave up on DC Comics. Mm. And The New Frontier brought me back. There's a nice sense and, of optimism in that book. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, what Karen Berger did with Vertigo. Um I've known Karen for years. She's an amazing human being, and she's a brilliant human being. And the fact that Vertigo began from a line of superhero books, there's a bunch of people who don't know of Vertigo that had superheroes because when they came upon it was Preacher, or maybe it was Why the Last Man, or it was Fables. But Vertigo started from Animal Man, Doom Patrol, Shade the Changing Man, Kid Eternity, and things like that. So that Karen was able to take a superhero line and explore other genres within the superhero conventions and then branch out was really amazing. And it's one of the amazing feats of our industry as we know it. And so those two things inspired me as to how I'm working with my creators to approach Catalyst Prime because it is a superhero universe, but it's pretty science-based. And science is so much a part of our lives in, in every way that you can think of. I mean, you and I are talking on a computer. People use their smartphones. Science is in every facet of our lives, down to our food. Hmm. Some of our food is genetically engineered. That's science. The technology in our sneakers is science. The products that we use for skincare, the vitamins that we take, everything is science. So science is very much at the core of this universe, as is hubris, human hubris. Um, Because this whole thing starts off from an attempt to save the world from coming to its end from an asteroid. When, when you think about that, you're like, but that's pretty damn hopeless. <laughs> we, we can't do that. We should all just pack our bags and accept that this is the end of the world. But no, people decide, as human beings do, to take on the impossible. And they do it, and there are consequences for taking on the impossible. You don't just take on the impossible and come back and you all get superpowers and you're a family and you're celebrities and you get to wear these blue uniforms with fours on them. (laughs) That's not how it works anymore. So we're going to show you what happens when you try to prevent the end of the world. 
so yeah so that's basically it you know that's where we're starting off and it's going to be a lot of fun how many titles are initially going to be part of the launch um seven titles there's going to be a one shot that christopher priest and i are co-writing and that one shot is going to kick off the line and then from may to december of 2017 for almost every month there will be a new number one that will kick off a series so by the time we end 2017 you will have been introduced to all seven titles wow that's pretty that's actually a pretty methodical kind of rollout where you're not kind of storming in with too many things all at once but you're kind of methodically dropping oh yeah absolutely i mean look there are so many comic books consumers only have so much money if you hit them with all of it at once it can be overwhelming and they'll reject it so what we want to do is we want to slowly bring you into this and hopefully people will engage all of them or some of them and see these connective threads that will start to reveal themselves and you know, they could say, hey, I just want to experience it book by book, or they can say, oh, I want to experience the big picture. And seven, ultimately, it's going to be, you know, seven books a month. That is not that big a task. When you think about the enormity of the DC universe, and you know that there are people out there who are buying at least two-thirds of the entire DC superhero line, and some are buying the entire damn line. So people take on that. They take on the family of X books and Avengers books. And it's when you think about that, Catalyst Prime, seven books, that's manageable. That can be done. So what my job is as senior editor and what the creators are doing is we want to make sure that every book is the best book that it can be and that it is a character-driven book, and that it has adventure, and that it surprises you sometimes. And the kind of culture that that stems from, the editorial culture that I learned from people like Dwayne McDuffie and Denny O'Neill and Mark Smiley, who was my boss at Archaea and is now the executive editor at Lionforge, is allowing for ideas especially ones that surprise you and knowing how to work with people to be an editor you have to or ideally you should be sociable you should be you should have some kind of optics some kind of social and cultural optics and you should know how to work with people and you should be able to inspire camaraderie because not many people are getting rich off of comics. We're doing this because we love it. So if that's the case, then let's all be comrades. Let's all work together. So when I put together the creative teams, I introduce creators via email, and I say, go with it. You can have discussions outside of me. I don't care. I don't think there's going to be a coup d'etat or anything like that. <laughs> you know, talk, collaborate come back at me with the best comic books you know I, I was speaking with this artist once and she said hey I really it would really be cool if me and this writer did something for you and I said yeah that would be cool I said give me the writer's email address she said I don't have it I said wait a minute hold the phone you just told me that you and this writer 
are doing a story together. And she said, yeah, but the editor doesn't allow us to speak to each other. Oh, wow. So I said, I said what, what, what? <laughs> what? And she said, yeah, I've never spoken to Brad. I said, okay, that's kind of ridiculous. Like in the truest sense of the word, like it's worthy of ridicule that a writer and an artist in the comic book industry are not allowed to speak to each other. Now, if they don't want to speak to each other, then hell, don't speak to each other. But to not allow that line of communication to exist in an industry that no one is getting wealthy off of hardly, that requires collaboration because it's a form of art that meshes narrative and illustration is mind-boggling to me. So I knew that for Catalyst Prime, everyone has to be able to talk to one another. And we're going to get some good books out of it. I uh, have a final question to, to close our interview today. It is, uh, do you feel a burden being one of the sharpest dressed men in comics? <laughs> okay, well, thank you very much. You're too kind. Um, I actually enjoy it. Like, getting dressed up is my cosplay. And I actually got it from Derek Dingle, one of the founders of Milestone. Um, he, you know, impressed upon me, um, I don't know, a certain, a certain class. I just saw him and he had a certain class about him. And I felt like coming back into comics, I wanted to bring that to comics. You know, I wanted to bring pocket squares and neckties and dress shirts and blazers. Like, wouldn't that be fun? I mean, okay, look, I'm not dressing up as Deadpool, I grant you, which is more fun. But <laughs> if, if you can't be Deadpool, then hell, look good, right? So, you know, that's my thing. And so I like dressing up. I'm kind of like my own Barbie doll in a sense and my, and my fiance likes it and you know as anyone who wants to stay in a long term relationship can tell you you know if you want something to last respond to the desires and needs of your partner and so she digs it so you know what I'm going to continue going with it <laughs> so, so so that's the deal so I don't feel a burden um, and my dry cleaner is thrilled <laughs> that's that's a good answer. <laughs> it's yeah, it's a truth. Well, Joe, thank you so much for uh, for spending time with us today, and we're, I'm really looking forward to uh, the output next year and for that slow rollout, so that by the end of the year, I can have all seven books. Thank you very much. It was great to be here, and please do be there for the launch in May of 2017. And you have to be sure and let me know what you think. I just realized I have one last question. <laughs> That's fine. Go I, with it. I don't know why I didn't think of this. Uh, what is it no, like writing a book with Christopher Priest? Whoa. Okay. So that experience. Um, well, it gives you insight into how diabolical the man's mind is, <laughs> which is which is really interesting. It's been one thing to experience it as a reader, but to experience it as a co-collaborator is a whole other thing. And... He's very generous when it comes to being a co-writer. It was actually his suggestion. Originally, I wanted him to solo write it. And he said, nah, man, you're coming along with me for the ride. You know this universe better than me. And I said, okay. You know? And so we did the plot together. You know, we, we shaped it like clay. 
and we both made contributions to each other's ideas and then he wrote his portions of the script and I wrote my portions of the script and then we would you know tweak each other's dialogue a little bit or something like that or I would say hey you know what's missing bang and then we would go back and revise it again so it's been a really amazing experience and you know I've had mentors in life and I still have them the you know not counting Dwayne McDuffie God rest his soul um the co-founders of the first incarnation of Milestone are still mentors of mine um Stephen Barnes who's a novelist and fitness guru is a mentor of mine um and Christopher Priest has become a mentor of mine in terms of story. Um, you know, you're always learning. You're always in school. And, you know, he'll say one or two things and it pulls the blinders off my eyes. And so I am very pleased to call him my friend. And I am happy to have him with us in the beginning of this endeavor and this endeavor is to do good for comic books and so it's really a highlight I'm enjoying it and it's definitely going to make me a better writer as a result Excellent, well again thank you so much for joining us Joe and I look forward to uh, the output next year Thanks very much, it's been great being here and let's talk again Will do Okay, take it easy.